0: Welcome, my name is Simon Dunmore from Defected Records London. When I first started collecting records in the mid 70s, I could never have imagined that it would lead me to owning an independent house music label, let alone getting to work alongside some of my musical heroes. Back in September 2011, I met the godfather of house, Frankie Knuckles. It was a time when the house scene was being challenged by the dominance of EDM, so we discussed his early days in Chicago and New York, his career at Death Mix, and how new communities were emerging so that the house music scene could re establish itself globally.
1: You are entering the house of Frankie Knuckles.
0: So, could you just tell us a little bit about your? your introduction to, to music. Before you was a DJ, how your tastes were honed, what was the music, who were your influences?
2: In elementary school, I used to doodle, draw, sketch, anything. And so what would happen is that when I'd come home from school, I'd sit there and, and the stereo would be on, my sister's stereo would be on, and I'm just listening to whatever music she's playing. I mean, everything from West Montgomery to Sergio Mendez and Brazil 66, and you know, a lot of jazz and then, you know, the Motown stuff that I would hear on the street anyway. So it was a lot of that. And uh, by the time I got into like the 11th grade, you know, I learned what it was to go out and hang out. And I'm running around with Larry LeVan at this particular point, you know, and uh, finding all, discovering all these clubs and all this nightlife. And he took me to the Loft for the very first time. So you were hanging out with Larry LeVan at the Loft when you were 16 years old? Well, I, I met Larry actually when I was 14. Um, 14 years old, so I might have been still in junior high school, something like that. And uh, by the time I got into high school, uh, yeah, then I began to run the streets with him. (laughs) And uh, he was DJing then? No, neither one of us were DJing. Mm -hmm. What happened was, the first time I hung out at the loft, David Mancuso was planning on taking a vacation at the end of the summer. And what the loft would have been closing. So there was another friend of mine that was working for Nicky Siena at the gallery. This friend of mine was given me to go into the, into the Air Force, but he had spoke to Nicky and said, listen, I have a friend of mine that can take my place here, if you don't mind. Right. You know, And so Nicky said, yeah, well, I need someone here. And so then he introduced me to Nicky outside of David's Loft
0: that night. A lot mm-hmm. of people kind of associate you with Chicago. Yeah. But you're actually from New York. Tell
2: us about growing up in New York. I was born and raised in the Boogie Down. <laughs> the Boogie Down Bronx, that is. Um, it wasn't pretty. I didn't like it. You know, uh, I was I was desperate to get out of there. I was destined to get out of there. I just knew that there was something better for me than, than what was there. And I had to get it. And I knew the only way I was gonna get was to get up and get out. And was that when you started to, to DJ at the Bath House? And... Well, why, it's interesting. While I was working at the gallery, at Nikki's Gallery, uh, uh, T. Scott, who was playing at a club called Better Days at the time, and T. Scott was one of the big DJs in New York at the time as well, um, had asked me to come and play on Monday and Tuesday nights because he was playing five days a week and now the club was going to expand and go seven days a week. But he didn't want to do the extra day, so he asked me if I would come and do it. Now mind you, I had never played records at that particular point. And T asked me if I would come and do it, and I was like, listen, I don't have any records, I can't do it, I don't think I have the ability to do it. He was like, you know all the music, you can use my records, I'll let you use my, you know, that kind of thing, and I was like, well, if you think so but i could use the money as well you know what i mean because i'm in high school i mean i'm young there are things i want things i want to do i want to look cute (laughs) you know i want to be fabulous like everybody else you know uh so i took the job so you
0: djing was like a spontaneous thing it wasn't like something that you dreamed about doing no
2: it was a job that, that 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 fell into my Pathway, if you will.
0: Okay, so you're filling in for T. Scott at Better Days. You've never done it before. What do you do? You practice mixing? Did
2: you just go in and just. Well, that, you know, for me, actually, that pretty much is exactly what it was. I was really practicing. I was really learning. I knew the music, yes, I knew it all. Um, But I had to learn how to put it together. You know, and back then it was so much completely different than what it is now because songs were everything. And as long as you played the right song, you were in there. Right. You, know, you didn't have to put it together well, but if you played the right songs, then you, know, then you were in there. You know, today everything relies so much on, on, on the technical end of it and everything matching and just the energy being up here versus, you know, the energy being
0: everywhere. Oh, no, I get that. So, you moved to Chicago. Why, why the move to Chicago?
2: After I left Better Days, I worked at Continental Bass for like about five years with Larry, and I went there as Larry's light man because Larry got the residency, and so he invited me to come and do lights for him. You know. And back in the day, that's how you got a job. If you're gonna work as a DJ, you, if you can get a job as a light man, then you can ultimately become a DJ one day because you're right there with the music all the time anyway. And sooner or later, the, ba- the DJ's gonna have to go to the bathroom and he might not make it back in time. So <laughs> you might have to change that record and you better know how to do it. So that's pretty much how it happened, but uh, Robert Williams actually wanted Larry for the warehouse in Chicago, and Larry didn't see himself going. But Larry kept saying, you should ask Frankie to go, you should ask Frankie to do it. I was second choice, but I didn't mind. And what was the reaction of you playing a New York style house? Was it very different from Chicago style house? Or? Well see, the thing about it is that Chicago didn't have any clubs. Not of that kind. It was a whole nother ball of wax by the time I got there. I mean, the only DJs that were really playing were actually on the north side of the city, and they were predominantly white. There were no black DJs that could get a job playing in any of those clubs. Um, And then here I come along, you know, (laughs) with the warehouse, and uh, I'm doing something that they had never quite experienced before. There's a story that
0: I, I read, actually, in a book by Cheryl Garrett, that um, when everybody entered the warehouse, they were given an acid tab. And during the course of the night, you would just completely stop the music, cut all the lights so the room was pitch black, and there would be a, the noise of a train going through the
2: sound system, and everybody freaked out. That's half true. That's half true. That's half true. One. Um, No one was given a tab of acid when they came through the front door. Now, they sorted that out on their own. (laughs) But um, I did a lot of environmental things in that room. Uh, I could be very experimental with it. And I could do anything I wanted to within that 12-hour period. So there would be points in the evening where, you know, I mean, the energy level is so high, you know, that I felt maybe I need to give these people a chance to catch up to themselves. So the song that's playing will fade out and then, or it would fade right into a rainstorm or something like that. And then we turn on the uh, exhaust fans and the heat in the room would just completely disappear. It would just cool off and people felt like they were actually in the dark, in a rainstorm. So you can hear it and then all of a sudden you hear the thunder and this, that and the other. And it would get really, really intense. And then as the rain began to subside and stuff like that, you can hear a train in the distance. And then all of a sudden, it would just like come right through that room and pitch, and people go running. But they would run into the walls, they would run into <laughs> themselves. You know, they couldn't see what they were doing, they couldn't see where they were going. But, yes. you know, in the cold light of the morning, the next day when it's all over and done with, people are standing around <laughs> outside just talking about that train, that train, <laughs> that train that ran. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I'd have to wait for people to really leave because I couldn't get out of the club because they would just rush me. Uh, some of them loving it, some of them lost their minds on it, you know, especially if, you know, if they're tripping like that. In the dark, you think you're really seeing these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I left the warehouse, everybody was really, really upset. I mean, everybody was upset. I got a real bad time about it. People didn't want me to leave, um, and I didn't want to leave, but I was trying to take that club to the next level. I was trying to get it to grow. Uh, I was physically trying to turn some things around about it. I wanted to upgrade the sound system, all these different things. But I had partners who just felt like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, and come on, I'm from New York City. (laughs) This is what you do you know, you stay on top of it. And for people to religiously come here every Saturday night, we have to keep upping this game to keep them interested. That's the reason why I began cutting tape and, and editing and doing all that different stuff early on, because when disco was declared dead, then it's like, well, look, I'm gonna to have to do something to keep these people interested. I mean, granted, they know the music, but they're gonna hear it now in a way that they never heard it before. You know, so with all that happening and people buying it and really into it and all the rest of there, different stuff, I just thought the club needed to grow with me, and it wasn't. So at that particular point, I, I felt it was time for me to move on. I mean, the last days of the warehouse, it got very, very dangerous. People were being stuck up on the dance floor. Um, yeah, at knife point, at gunpoint. people had been robbed, this, said and the other. That's what it turned into. And for me, what it was originally, it was really a, a small piece of heaven for a lot of people. The next kind of phase of your
0: career started with the productions that you were involved with.
2: The original version of Move Your Body, I, did, I mixed that for Marshall Jefferson. Uh, and then there was a host of little small records that came out on tracks that I had done. You know, I mean, I was, I'd never got paid for any of that work, but the education was the pay. So by the time I left Chicago, going to New York City, uh, record companies and A&R people were coming out of the woodwork asking me to do things for them. And I just happened to get in at Death Mix on the ground floor, coming through the front door with all of this. Deathmix um, was a production remix
0: DJ organization which consisted of yourself, David Morales, later Weinstein. on Satoshi Tomi, and it was managed by, by Judy
2: Weinstein. Well, I've always known Judy. Judy and I, we were both loft members, you know, and so she and I went back much further than. David and I did, and when I moved back to New York City, uh, she was telling me about how David and her were developing the production company, and if I'd be interested in becoming a part of it. And the chemistry between you and David, how
0: did that work? Who was responsible for what specific part of the music-making process?
2: We were both equally uh, responsible for it. It's interesting because he took the top end where all the percussion is and the drums, because that's mainly his thing. Uh, at least it was at the time, and I'd be at the bottom end of the board where all the vocals are and the harmonics and the, all the pretty stuff, <laughs> and I'm down here. And we just fuse it all together, and you get something like Where Love Lives by Alice Memory. There are certain records that
0: you remember the first time that you heard those records, and if it would be Where Love Lives was one of them, The Sounds of Blackness, your remix of The, the Pressure, Pressure. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, there's the, that was the, the a house mix with, the, with the chord intro, which was amazing. There was the disco vibe to it. It was just a timeless piece of music. Yeah. And Tears, I mean, how did Tears come
2: about? It was in 1988. I went to Japan for the first time uh, on tour, and the first gig was in Tokyo. Um, and they had this kid that was playing keyboards that would play like... Uh, a fanfare or something like that just before I'd come on to play. That kid was Satoshi me, We started communicating through an interpreter, and uh, I kept saying, you know, we need to work on some music together. And um, he said he had some ideas about a song and stuff, and he posted a cassette to me that had the outline of Tears. And I fell in love with it, and I was playing the cassette at The World and everywhere else. and. Um, so Judy said, you know, you should really turn this into a song. You need to write some lyrics. And I was like, Judy, it's beautiful the way it is. We don't need to touch it. And so she was like, no, in order for it to really get over and go somewhere, you really have to write a song to it. So Satoshi can speak a little English now. So I asked him, if you could have anybody in the world sing on this album, on this record, who would you want? And he said, Robert Owens. Robert Owens was my roommate at the time. (laughs) I was like, well, Robert Owens is sitting right here, we can get him to do it, it's not a problem. You know. And so, Robert and I sat there and we wrote the lyrics to it. So, part of the reason that the record sounded like they did back in
0: those days, and that they were, they were successful, not just on the dance floor, but on the radio as well, was down to the fact that you utilized real singers, real musicians, and you put the whole soundscape together. Fast track to today, Everyone's just making records on, on their laptops.
2: Well, you know, we would, I think, um, we were the last of a dying breed. We were the last to come down the pike that actually worked in real recording studios um, with live musicians and, and, and singers and full on production in a live room. Today, it's all done in these guys' bedrooms, it's very one dimensional. That's where the music is, what it's grown into now. It's very one dimensional. Whereas when you're producing it in a live room like that on a 72-track board, you got to spread out. You know I mean? The production can really breathe. It sounds big, you know? And it can be something that's really, really tight, but overall the sound itself is big. When you listen to, you know, a production like The Sounds of Blackness, The Pressure, that's so all I that, it's huge. You know, and then the way everything was mastered after we finished, you know, I mean, it's just big. Now everything is pretty much done, you know, on these guys' laptops or in their bedroom. And most of them don't know the first thing about producing a song. I stopped producing and remixing for a very long time. And still, I would go shopping, looking for music, and had great difficulty finding things that really appealed to me. So, when I got asked to do Hercules and the Love Affair, for example, that's what pulled me back into it. But at that particular point, I figured, okay, listen, if I'm gonna do this, then I have to be able to do it at a level that's comfortable for me. I, know, I mean, I've got the experience. I know exactly how to make these records. I know how, exactly how to make these songs work. But I have to make sure that the song is there first. There was a period where no matter how many different genres or offshoots were coming out and stuff like that, still at the center was you know, um, a sound that had a great amount of soul to it, and a great amount of vocal, and you know, and 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 stories being told, and something that you can sink your teeth into, you know what I mean. And then all of a sudden it was gone. For a long period of time it was gone. It was your Hard House, and your New York Hard House, and this, that, and the other, and your Trans and Yada, yada 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 yada. Hey, look, I'm not knocking any of it, but it's always been a situation where it will go around, and then it will come back around, and then it was beginning to come back around, and there was nothing there. And that's what scared me. I went to actually see you DJ at the Ministry of Sound. So we're talking
0: maybe 20 years Mm. ago. And you played the Roger Sanchez mix of Kathy Sledge, Take Me Back to Love, Mm. which had this amazing piano intro. And you had two copies. And you played that intro for five minutes. My opinion, the greatest record Roger's ever made. And and you know what? I sat there because I was doing club promotions at the time. And I was like, if I get my records remixed, I want him played for 20 minutes in a row as well. <laughs> I don't want them played for five minutes. I'm going to make you listen to this record. God damn you, you're going to listen to it. When you walk, walk out, out of the door at the
2: end of the night, you are going to be singing this song. And, oh.
0: I, and that, I remember that 20 years on, I remember you playing that in the way that you played it. And nowadays, people get two hours to play.
2: And that doesn't happen anymore. How do you, no. how do you feel about that? It, um, it's kind of heartbreaking when you're playing a lengthy set, there's a moment in the evening where this old roommate of mine used to call it Juju, where Juju comes into the room. And that Juju is magic, where the whole room just begins to come together like this and it becomes one. And at that particular point, you might as well step to the back of the booth because the records are playing themselves. You know what I mean? It's all, it's all magic. And then you can, at that particular point, the audience is right here, and you can, you can play like that. You can do things like that with them. You can go in and out of this record. You can come out of it, go back into it, to change it, do something else, and turn around and come back with it again. And they just go crazy each time it comes back. So by the end of the night, when they walk out of their room, that's the one song they remember more than anything, and they sing it. Fast forward, uh, 2011.
0: 2011. 2012 fast approaching you are about to mix your frankie knuckles in the house compilation which is in my opinion long overdue i should have asked you actually many years ago tell us a bit about the music you've chosen you know you've got two cds to be able to express yourself and obviously it's a good opportunity to tell the people what frankie knuckles
2: is about my approach towards this mix uh, program is to um, obviously show people exactly where I am these days, but as new as a lot of it is, um, it's very, fam- sonically, it's very familiar. The sound is very familiar. There might be a, a classic or two here and there that will, that's strategically placed just to give a person a rush the first time they hear it. You know, a rush in a way that will put a big smile in their face and so that every time they put it on to listen to it, they still get that same chill running up and down their spine. And we talked about DJs and, and the way that technology has changed the
0: face of DJing and producing. You're gonna mix it, you know, using modern technology.
2: I'm gonna mix this, this, this program the old-fashioned way. One song after the next but you're going to do it using i don't know like a what ableton modern or something software. like that? Yeah, yeah. No. No? No. So how are you uh, you going to get decks? I so. got skills. <laughs> <laughs> i am sure. Please <laughs> after 40 years I better be able to know how to do it without having to depend on, you know.
0: So you you're, you're going to do it in a in an old-fashioned Absolutely. organic human way, yeah? Absolutely. Obviously you've got back into the the production side of things. How, how has that come about? The director's cut remixes that
2: you've been producing. It came on the heels of Blind by um, Hercules and the Love Affair. At that particular point, I just decided, okay, I want to do this. You know, I think maybe I can do this now because there was someone interested. Before that, I didn't think anybody was really interested in me doing anything like that again. You know, but uh, when I got asked to do it, and that record came out, and it blew up, and it was as huge as it was, I figured, okay. I can, I can try this again, you know, and then there were several other smaller projects that I went after. You know, nobody tossed them at me. I just went after them. And um, I was like, oh, this is easy. All I have to do is just ask for the part. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm looking around at all these other people that are doing all these remixes, and I'm thinking, well, surely these people didn't get commissioned to do this, and this is what they put out. You know, so I just figured if it was just as easy as all that to get the parts and let me do it too. 40 years
0: DJing, producing what is the future for Frank Knuckles? how do you see your next 5 years
2: honestly I don't know I, um, I had a dark period you know uh, everybody I guess at some point everyone goes through it especially if you had early success you know uh, if you get on the other side of it you kind of sort of look back and you realize how blessed and gifted you are and then you just begin to take things as as they come along. You know, I don't, I don't stress about anything. I don't overanalyze anything. Um, as I said, you know, I'm working at a level that's really comfortable for me, and everybody's working with me in that way, you know? And so, I'm gonna ride this as long as I can, you know? And I'm not going to take it for granted. You know, I'm gonna try and make the most out of it and just try and continue to hopefully uh, choose just the right songs to work on and make them as beautiful as that possible can.
0: Well, you know, I, I would just, I would like to finish by saying that, you know, the dance scene has become very commercial and very overground in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the scene that we grew up in was, n- was never that way, it was more underground, it was more about groups of people and communities connecting with other. and Community. that seems to have, over the last four or five years, have been lost to some degree, but from what the last few months I'm seeing, those communities are coming back, and for me it's a, actually a very exciting time, because there is a me real too. divide coming between what is the ultra-commercial side of dance music at this moment, mm-hmm. and the more indulgent, soulful, underground, where kids don't want to be hit over the head for eight or nine hours in a club. And I think that those kids are your people like Hercules and Love Affair. Mm -hmm. And they want to know about Frankie Knuckles. They want to know about where the music that they are inspired by Mm -hmm. has come from. And you know, you were one of the people making that sound, you were there at the beginning. So I believe that for people like yourself, there is a whole new generation of people that want to hear the story again. I don't know what your future for the next five years holds, but
2: I reckon it's going to be good. I have too much fun doing what I do. Um, There's a, I think that there's a demographic out here that gets overlooked all the time. Um, And these are our contemporaries that I'm talking about. You know, and when our contemporaries start coming back out again, because there's music they can sink their teeth into, makes them feel good and reminds them of where they came from. You know, um, then it becomes bigger than what it is now because you've got where they came from with what's going on now. And today's youth, if you will, gets a lesson you know, on what this is and what this is about. You know, uh, they begin to realize it's a lot more than just fluff, you know what I mean? Radio is radio and it's gonna always be that. But there is an element of the nightlife where there's a main road that everybody goes down and then there's that little shack over there on the side that, you know, only a select amount of people know exactly how good it is and that's where they go. Because even when this main commercial club closes, that one's still open. You know, when their day comes to an end, this one is just really getting started, you know what I mean? And that's where all the best music usually is, you know? And some of these people will find their way over there, you know, and begin to learn exactly what it's all about. I mean, and that's pretty much what what it was like growing up in Chicago and playing at the warehouse. I mean, the bars were closed and people were like, well, there's this place downtown, (laughs) you know? And they would come there and they begin to realize, wow, this has been here all this time, I had no idea yeah you know some things you know not everything has to be on the main road. you know what I mean sometimes you find paradise paradise in just the smallest places, but it can be so much bigger than what it what it usually is. me being able to make music again the way i'm doing, it, I'm having so much fun doing it to be able to redo your love, for example, um, it's something I' thought about many times. I've watched many different people cover it and put it out or sample it this that and the other and it's been okay but it's never been anything I've been absolutely thrilled about and being so close to it I figured if I'm going to do it then I have to there's no better time for me to redo it than now because I can't imagine technology being greater than what it is to make me be able to make it happen and still make it feel the way it did originally you know and so This is where I'm at, and and I'm very happy for where I am.
0: And I think that's a great way to say thank you very much, Mr. Frankie Knuckles. Thank you, my friend.
1: (laughs) Hello. My name is Frederick Dunson, and I am the president and executive director of the Frankie Knuckles Foundation. The Frankie Knuckles Foundation was founded in December of 2014 after Frankie's untimely passing earlier that year. The Frankie Knuckles Foundation is a non-for-profit educational and cultural organization dedicated to the advancement of Frankie's mission as the global ambassador of house music through media, conservation, and public events continuing and supporting the causes he advocated. FKF is a recognized 501c3 and focused on these initiatives. Music in schools, LGBTQIA youth homelessness, AIDS Research and Prevention, and Diabetes Research and Education. If you'd like to support us or find out more information, please visit our website, T-H-E-F-K-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org or our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram as well. One of my favorite Frankie memories happened in 2006. He was Playing the Legends Ball and the next morning we got invited to brunch the gospel brunch at Oprah's estate the promised land and as we were walking through the crowds Frankie was like a little child who was opening up Christmas gifts as he was gushing at all of the different personalities that was there it's a memory that I'll cherish forever and a moment in time that won't be forgotten easily Frankie, I love you and I miss you. To everyone, please be safe and stay well. Thank you.